Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So I'm a different generation to you, and... The idea is, is that your generation looks at my generation and says, you guys got it totally wrong. Like you just worked all the time and you felt that that's what validated you and that you were told that it, without doing this, you're not going to progress. Whereas a different generation says, actually, that's not how I want to live my life. You know, and that I think buys into being alone as well, really, because we all need time alone. Welcome to another season of Alonement, the podcast about the time you spend alone and why it matters. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, author of Alonement, How to Be Alone and Absolutely Own It, and a former extreme extrovert who, a few years ago, discovered the life-changing power of taking some time to myself. On this show, I interview fascinating people who can give inspiration and practical advice on how to make your alone time the best it can be. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. This week, my interviewee is radio and TV presenter Nihal Arthanaika. While I'll be asking the questions today, Nihal is most used to playing the other role having interviewed countless household names, including Mini Driver, Ricky Gervais and Benedict Cumberbatch on his regular BBC Five Live show. He's recently written a book, Let's Talk How to Have Better Conversations, published this summer, based on what he's learned through his job. And we'll be discussing this as part of the episode. I'm really curious to discuss how having better conversations and an overall better quality of social connection can actually support and almost underpin the quality of our alone time. Before we get to the episode, I want to give a big shout out to this season's sponsor, Flashpack, a travel company for solo travellers in their 30s and 40s, providing boutique group adventures all around the world. There's trips to Bali, Morocco, Sri Lanka, Japan. The world is your oyster. I've been working with Flashpack since the beginning of this year. And last April, I had the chance to experience one of their adventures for myself, traveling the hotspots of Colombia. I made so many new friends, many of whom I'm still in touch with, and had the kind of colorful, memorable experiences I'd been craving for the past couple of years of lockdown, including salsa dancing, boat trips, and eating delicious South American cuisine. 
What's incredible about going away with Flashpack is that you get the best of both worlds. Wonderful company, if you'd like it, and the ease of having someone else sort out the logistics, but also the independence of choosing where and when you'd like to have an adventure. If you'd like to experience a Flashpack holiday for yourself, they've provided an exclusive discount offer to all Alonement listeners. Quote the code ALONEMENT to give you £100 off your dream trip today. Well, Nihal, thank you so much for coming on. It's really great to have you on the show. Uh, to start with, I'm intrigued. As a radio presenter, you spend a lot of time speaking to other people and you've written a book about how to have better conversations. But what's your relationship with being alone? It's becoming more and more necessary for me to be alone. It really is. And writing the book meant that I had to be alone. You know, Writing is a very solitary job, isn't it? You can't do it while conversating with other people or checking your phone all the time. You've got to really focus on it. Weirdly enough, though, I found writing in a place with other people easier than sitting at home alone doing it where there were so many distractions. Weirdly, Francesca, I ended up going to uh, David Lloyd Gym's business centre. And actually, they've got this little lounge area that, kids aren't allowed it and there are armchairs in there and I closed it off put on the music of uh, Ludovico Einaudi uh, drank matcha lattes oat milk matcha lattes to be specific this is like the most middle class way of writing a book possible kind of is yeah yeah right and I just churned out 62,000 words but being alone is I've just been alone for a month, actually. My wife and kids have been in Sri Lanka. And I've really savoured it. I love being alone in my car doing long drives. I really, really love that. So in this past month, I drove from Stockport in the northwest of England, where I lived close to Manchester. I drove to Penrith and back again in a day. I drove to London and back again in a day. I drove to Glasgow. I drove to Edinburgh. And I really loved those drives, you know, just hours and hours, four or five hour journeys, listening to music, listening to podcasts, being alone. You know, it's such a vital component of life and the ability to allow your mind to not be kind of enslaved by other people's expectations and just focused on wondering. I think that's a very poetic way of putting it, obviously. (laughs) Very creatively inspired by all that time in the car and writing. But I kind of like that you're almost taking these sort of less scenic locations, you know, the conference room in the David Lloyd, the, the car, the places that people wouldn't expect you to have this sort of, I don't know, lofty solitude experience. They're sort of the places we wouldn't expect, but actually... I don't know. I think sometimes there's like almost an inverse proportion to how somewhere looks into sort of like that, you know, Instagrammable solitude perspective and actually where you're able to just switch off and be you. But what is it about the car specifically that allows you to focus? Because obviously, I mean, you've got your hands busy, I guess, but maybe there's more to it. Yeah. Well, the drive from the northwest of England to Scotland is so beautiful. You know, as you cross 
you pass Carlisle and there's Penrith, you know, you go through the lakes actually, and then you get into the border areas and it's just beautiful. It's stunning. And of course, while you are focusing on driving, which is very important, and you are legally obliged to do that, it's also, you can't help but notice just how beautiful the countryside is, just how stunning it is. And driving through, actually, there are some times where I drive and I don't listen to anything. I also drive an electric car, which is really quiet. So you don't have any of the sounds of an engine. It feels like you're almost gliding along in a fully electric car. So that also has a kind of peace that it brings you as you're in some ways floating through this extraordinary landscape of giant hills and of undulating countryside and this giant motorway that's been carved through this extraordinary landscape. And it's almost meditative for me. And also remember, once you're locked into a car, the car, again, an electric car as well, it shuts out all the noise outside and there's no noise inside. And in fact, I think there was a manufacturer who made an electric car. And when you put your foot down on the accelerator, it, it copied that sound inside the car for people who missed it. But I don't miss it. I love it. And some people kind of take the mickey out of electric cars and call them like go-karts and milk vans, etc. But I love it. And it really aids that peace that comes with long drives. And I've really got into long drives. It's such a, I guess, a middle-aged thing, I guess, blokes with, you know, going on long drives. I don't know. It's a place where you are very much alone, very much alone. I think um, I think electric car manufacturers are missing a trick when it comes to their advertising. Yeah. <laughs> it's clearly it's this sanctuary of of solitude as well. It is, really and is. It, you know it's funny because I was uh, when I was researching for this episode, I saw you did this uh, winter walks series with the BBC, where you sort of walked around the Cumbria Lancashire border, and it was sold as this sort of solitude experience. It all looked very Wordsworthian. Do you prefer driving? I, I, I'm, I'm getting that driving's the better experience here. I haven't gone on long walks on my own, but I i mean to. Yesterday, my daughter and I did a, an hour-long walk through kind of manufactured countryside. So there were paths set out, but we did it circular with the dog and we talked a lot and that was lovely. But it's definitely something I want to do more of. We've just bought a house in Sri Lanka, where our family's from. And we bought it without seeing it. Well, we saw it online, but certainly didn't visit it. And I visited it, you know, in the early summer. And it was just so amazing to sit there. And nothing's ever truly quiet, is it, Francesca, right? There's always some noise going on somewhere. But the noise of nature in Sri Lanka is so different to the noise of nature here in the UK. I think the new the noise of nature tends to be kind of a quartet. In Sri Lanka, it's a full orchestra. There are so many sounds. The sounds the birds make are extraordinary, them themselves, let alone the crickets or various different insects that are making their own little noises. 
And while it could be described as a cacophony, it actually isn't. It's, again, to use that word, quite meditative, to just sit in the middle of that and allow it to happen all around you. So even though I do love the car, I also do love nature. And I, and I think I need to I need to spend much more time alone, just walking and stopping and not being set to anybody's time. That's another problem with being alone, isn't it? Is that you're trying to make sure that there's a time without pressure that you can be alone knowing that in an hour's time you don't have to be at a meeting you don't have to take a call you can just be alone it's quite like at the weekends where I don't have to wake up I don't set an alarm there's like something about just waking up when your body tells you to wake up as opposed to when a machine tells you to wake up and I've been trying to do that as well more and more. Mm. It's a, there's a phrase that I think I think he endorsed your uh, your book, which we'll get onto. I think Matt Haig uses the phrase "baggy time," right? And I, right. I just love the idea. I think it comes from like bags of time. Um, right. But yeah, baggy time. It's and it's one of those things. I guess I mean it's, it's lovely to enjoy with another person, but it's always very, very lovely to enjoy alone and sort of almost acting on your own impulses sort of being you know that your impulse to I don't know go to Nando's go and see a movie go and do whatever just but that being the signpost to your to your time but you need to have lots of baggy time in order to even feel like you can make those spontaneous decisions sometimes rather than account for every minute yeah I wonder if that's part of the kind of quiet quitting movement about taking yourself away from the pressure to work all the time because quiet quitting people talk about is actually nothing to do with quitting it's actually saying well I'm contractually obliged to do these hours that's all I'm going to do and I'm going to stop when I'm contractually obliged to stop rather than working two three four hours extra to please a boss who actually really doesn't care and those three hours that I'm going to spend extra I'm going to do something with those three hours something that actually resets life-work balance. So I'm a different generation to you. And the idea is, is that your generation looks at my generation and says, you guys got it totally wrong. Like you just worked all the time and you felt that that's what validated you and that you were told that in, without doing this, you're not going to progress. Whereas a different generation says, actually, that's not how I want to live my life. You know, And that, I think, buys into being alone as well, really because we all need time alone. We need it. It's interesting that, yeah, as you say, normally the boss doesn't really care. Normally you are almost internalizing your sense of what their needs are over your own, but you've got to, it then becomes the inconvenient situation of having to think, okay, well, if I'm quiet quitting from that, what do I want to do? And making those, those decisions, I don't know, it can almost... Because, you know, we've all seen the productivity graphs, right? When we work those sort of three, four hours later into the evening and it just, it never works out. It's not good for anyone. But I think, yeah, I've never actually, I think the quiet quitting movement is something that I'm just hearing everywhere at the moment. But you're right, within the context of time alone, I guess it it comes down to like one's own like desires, needs. I don't know, just listening to yourself. But also you want to resist the pressure, Francesca, to think that if you're quiet quitting, that I need to do something in those three to four hours because then you're just putting 
the similar pressure that the working environment puts on you. It's like, okay, I'm going to learn a language. You know, I'm going to do something to enhance myself. When actually, you could just do nothing, right? And this idea that doing nothing is bad is counterproductive. I think Johan Hari talks about this in his book, Stolen Focus, about how we need time to do nothing so that all the disparate ideas that are pinging around in our head can form connections that they can't form if we're constantly feeding information into our brains. You need that time to walk alone, be alone with your thoughts and let them just wonder and let them find themselves. It sounds kind of hippie-ish, but I think in Johan's book, he points to research that says it actually is invaluable to do that. Well, and I think almost, I don't know, when you hear that as a person that does put it on yourself to be productive, as you know, pretty much everyone listening to this, I'm sure they felt that pressure. I don't know, maybe it's a nice consolation to think all those thoughts are sort of merging in the, in the background, <laughs> that your brain is working, just not in the way that you're forcing it to, you're not sort of forcing down the accelerator to take sure. take the sort of car imagery we were talking about earlier. I'm really, I'm really intrigued as well, because I know that you're saying, um, you know, oh, I, you know, I should, I should spend more time alone, or that's something that you're almost thinking that it's something you want to integrate more into your life now. But you say, I read in the foreword of your book, talking to people has always come really naturally to you. And, you know, it's probably pretty obvious to listen to you. And I know as well as a fellow extrovert, how socially rewarding that can be. Part of why I wrote my book and started my platform was because as a natural gregarious extrovert, I was sort of socially rewarded my whole life. And no one ever said to me, you should develop some solitude skills alongside your social skills. That was never something that people put on me but you know I, I wonder for you has it ever been a disincentive to learn to spend time in your own company because you're so good at sort of being in the company of others and and making a platform for them I think when you confuse alone with lonely that's when it becomes problematic so the idea is is that if you're alone then you're not being socially successful and People who are alone are alone because others don't want to be with them. So then you kind of persuade yourself that by being alone, you are somehow excluded from the fun that everybody else is having. I mean, you know, the FOMO. You have to learn, I think, as you get older, but also as well to a certain extent. If your 20s are about networking, right? If your 20s into your early to mid 30s about networking, then you're mid 30s onwards are about filtering down people right to who you really like who you really want to be with who really inspire you who are really useful to you and you useful to them and for men men have a bigger social circle than women in our 20s but by the time we get to our 50s that shrunk at a rate that it doesn't for women so there's a lot of kind of loneliness imposed on men and self-imposed by men, which leads to quite serious issues as men get into middle age. So yes, being gregarious and being an extrovert is great, but there are societal issues that men face that force solitude upon us as we get older. 
And we have to be very mindful of that as men because we still do need human connection. We still need to be able to express that we're feeling lonely. And while we may need to be on our own from time to time, as all humans do, we also have to understand that we can't lie to ourselves as some men do and say, no, I like my own company because you don't like your own company all the time. And there's a real issue for men. Recently, a book was written called Billy No Mates. And I interviewed the author and we spent an hour of my radio show talking about being lonely as men. And there was a huge outpouring of texts from our audience, many of whom are men in their late 40s and 50s, who were having to confront this issue, which they'd never really confronted before, that now the only person in their life was their partner. And they didn't really have any contact with other men in a meaningful way. So while being alone is important, men shouldn't use that as some kind of example of the stoicism of men. We must also be able to say that we're lonely. We must also be able to say to our friends that we miss them and that we need them. And I think men find that quite hard to say, Francesca. I think this is so interesting because it's honestly a perspective I haven't had on the podcast before, right? I think that it's not as popular maybe or not not as sort of tapped into the sort of female narrative to say, oh, I, you know, I want to be alone. You don't say it in the same way. It doesn't have the same resonance of sort of maybe, yeah, as you say, stoicism. It doesn't have that same sort of, you know, Henry Through-esque reputation that you can almost tap into without meaning it. So I don't know. I think you've identified a really interesting danger and I suppose a really tricky line to balance when approaching the idea of, of solitude, uh, you know, as, as a man and especially as, as someone navigating loneliness in that quite specific gendered way. Do you think that you get to a stage where, you know, for instance, you, you know, you're married, you're settled down with two children, you're in that state. Do you think that that's something that maybe comes later for men or, or is something that can come more safely later when you are in that more settled state? Do you think it's a case of, you know, prioritizing just it, it comes as a latter priority or? If I'm brutally honest in a situation whereby I almost feel guilty of asking to be alone because it's really difficult to tell people that you want to be alone, not because you don't want to be with them, but because you want to be alone. Mm. And it's quite difficult to communicate that to people who feel that when you say you want to be alone and that you need to be alone, they see it as an affront. They see it as almost an insult that the reason you want to be alone is because you don't want to be with them. And the two things are not the same. They're absolutely not the same. That's something that's quite tricky to navigate. I mean, at the moment, I'm in a, and, I, and I'm blessed that my kids who are teenagers still want to spend time with me. So with my son, it's about sitting there and watching Breaking Bad together, right? So we've started watching Breaking Bad together and that's amazing. But by doing that, then my daughter is, a, well, what are we gonna do? Hence why my daughter and I went for that long walk yesterday, just the two of us. So they want time with you alone, just the two of us. And that's brilliant because in four years, my son will go to university and I'll miss him terribly. 
And in five years, my daughter will, and I'll miss her terribly. So you're trying to kind of fill up the time to make sure that you spend as much time with them as possible, but also fitting in work, but also as well, being a husband and being present as a husband, which again is not something that I'm particularly great at because I'm focusing on the children, I'm going to work, and I do a job which involves a lot of talking. So you're kind of talked out. And that's, you know, that's that's tough, right? You've got to make time. It's almost as if you end up scheduling everybody's time like a meeting. You go, right, I'm going to spend this amount of time with that person, this amount of time with that person, this amount of time with that person. And you're constantly juggling that. And then you get to the end of the week and you might think, well, I need a bit of time. I need a bit of time. And that time doesn't involve any of you, right? It's quite tricky how to communicate that to people without them feeling like you just don't want to be with them. When nothing could be further from the truth, of course you do. But you understand for your own mental health that it's just nice to be alone or talk to strangers, you know, mm. and that's a constant balancing act. And I think that's a balancing act for every adult who's got kids and is in a marriage and or in a partnership, finding that time. And there's never a right time, right? There's never a right time unless you schedule it, unless you say, okay, 45 minutes a day, I'm going to be on my own. Wander off. You're not going to see me. I'm going to switch my phone off and come back, right? Maybe you have to schedule it in. Which might be a good solution. I think that, you know, making time for anything, sometimes it does involve a schedule. I, I had someone describe alone time as a sort of fluctuating commodity to me once. And they said, you know, because I, you know, do this podcast very much knowing that I'm doing it from the perspective of someone who's single, living alone, and at a stage in my life where I can basically kind of designate my own time. So for me, it does become almost about scheduling in the social time to then create a framework for the alone time. I know that that won't be the same and at every stage of my life. And for instance, I had Connie Hook on the podcast um, a few seasons ago who said to me that for her, she didn't have much interest in making too much alone time at this stage in her life. Now she had her two boys uh, and her partner, and and it just wasn't a priority, even though it had been, she's had so much of it previously. So I, I don't know, I think that in that scheduling, maybe sometimes it's a case of just knowing there are periods of your, your life where you have more of it, where you have less of it, where it becomes more of a priority. I do think the question about having children and almost showing them health, what healthy alone time can look like is interesting though. Is that something that you've had to almost face with your children or... Is it something that they've done naturally themselves? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think they have a lot of alone time. I don't think I need to teach them. I certainly don't need to teach my daughter about that because she does tend to go to her room and she's just turned 13 and create these worlds whether she's writing scripts which is something she's currently doing or whether she's drawing or whether she's building she has that within her to do that without question as does my son they're pretty good actually i've got to say they're pretty good at although here's an interesting thing they're not good at being bored you know they're of a generation that grew up purely with technology. So they've never known a non-mobile phone, iPad world. So in that respect, they find the phone as a way of connecting, even when they're alone. So there's that phrase, isn't there? You're never alone with a phone. And I guess they feel a little bit like that. But one thing that's interesting about that, Francesca, is that we don't allow our kids to wonder like I was allowed to wonder, right? So I would leave the house. I grew up in a village in Essex. I would leave the house at whenever in the summer holidays and I would come back when I was hungry. They don't have that freedom to do that. You know, we would be paranoid as all hell if they were doing that. So in that respect, they wonder through their phones. That's how they go off and wonder. But we put controls on that as well. They, I think, equate alone with boredom and they don't want to be bored. And we keep telling them it's okay to be bored. We want you to be bored, right? Because as they get older, they'll realize that that is actually time for your thoughts to crystallize around different ideas. But at the moment, they're teenagers. So if they're not doing something, they're bored. That's it. That's the binary. That's what it seems like anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I think every parent in the history of time is always worried about, you know, specific to that era, the way the world's changing or the way, you know, the way that they're living different. I, I don't know. And we don't know. I mean, it's fascinating to see what the younger generations, how, how you know, the TikTokification of information, all of that will, will change. But 
in 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 a way it seems like the younger people are more are better adapted to it than you know those of us who've known the life without the internet it's interesting to see but i wonder how that taps into your book is all about having better conversations you know uh, that's the subtitle Let, let's talk how to have better conversations how do you think technology gets in the way of that mm, massively hugely so for instance Say, Francesca, later on today, you go out for a coffee with one of your friends, right? Good friend. And your good friend is going through a relationship issue that he or she desperately wants to talk to you about. You meet and your phone comes out and you put it on the table face up. Their phone also comes up. What you're effectively saying to each other is, what you have to say to me is only of equal importance to the notifications that this phone will notify me of. So halfway through the conversation about how this person is having a really bad time of it because someone who she or he's in a relationship with is being awful to them. Instagram is telling you that there's been a like or you've got a new email or the BBC news website is pinging you a notification. Now, a professor Posner from Oregon University, and I quote this in the book, and this is research that was told to me by Johan Hari, who I interviewed for the book. Professor Posner says that when you're interrupted, it will take you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus that you were on before of that interruption. So by putting your phone there that's visible to you, you're automatically degrading the quality of the conversation you're going to have because you're not fully focused on the person in front of you. You can't be, because you're waiting for this to interrupt you. And it is designed to do so. It is designed to hook you in, because it's monetizing your eyeballs. That's what it's doing. All of these apps are free, because they sell ad space based on how much time you spend looking at that app. So it needs you to be on it for as long as possible. And by doing so, Francesca, you're not focusing on the person in the level that they need you to focus on them. That needs to be considered. It needs to be recognized. We need to understand it. We need to understand what it's potentially doing to us. Next time you're out, look at couples, may not be platonic couples, mm. friends, and see how many people are sitting in front of each other and looking at their phones. Once you start to realize it and recognize it, as I did after writing this book, it kind of becomes slightly horrifying. You kind of feel like that person that can see zombies all around you where no one can. It's a bit weird. Weirdly enough, it's something that comes up quite a lot when you go out for dinner alone, particularly dinner, because you will then have the vantage point to notice all the couples ignoring each other while on their phones. And yeah, again, it's very eye-opening that actually you're alone, but you then feel much better in your alone time, even if some people might not think that. Because <laughs> you think, well, at least I, at least, you know, I'm giving myself more attention than they're giving to each other. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting because I think that personally, after having had many good conversations, after having been around close friends and you know, looked people in the eye, that you know, the way that we really weren't able to do for so long during the pandemic, all of that. I then feel able to um, retreat and have have solitude because I suppose it's you get almost more 
of a wholesome form of socializing, a better connection. And I think there's something about having the purity of both. The thing I worry about with technology imposing on our social connection is that we don't quite feel we're full up. So we don't quite feel full up for the other part of our sort of balanced diet of alone time and social time. Do you, do you think there's something in that, that having better conversations can actually help us then go back and value our solitude? Without question, because the problem you have is is that while you believe that you're connecting to each other via a WhatsApp group of friends, you're actually not. You're not passing anything more than superficial banter back and forth. There's nothing meaningful really happening in that group. And yet somehow it's tricking you into thinking that there is. And at the end of it, as you point out, you still feel unfulfilled by that. But actually having a conversation with someone Coming away with that warm glow, that oxytocin, that cuddle hormone, the love hormone surging through you because you've had something that is meaningful, that means that you can then be in a position to see your alone time as valuable as opposed to seeing your alone time as actually time when you're lonely that is imposed upon you rather than you choosing it. So I think that, that again, is important to understand that as a... Sherry Turkle, the professor at MIT, said as the title of her book, you can be alone together, right? And that is kind of terrifying when you think that you are actually connected when really you're not connected. And that alone together means that you're really lonely in a digital world. You're lonely online. And you have fooled yourself into thinking that these apps are actually connecting you to others in a meaningful way when they're not. I'm nodding a lot when you say Sherry Turco. I love her because uh, she was also kind of one of the fundamental people I was looking at when I was researching my concepts. And I don't know, she was quite almost quite pioneering, wasn't she, talking about tech before <laughs> lots of other people as well? Oh, without question. Without question. Yeah. She was like the Nostradamus of this <laughs> stuff. I mean, she was looking at this. She was looking at this, Francesca, what, 40 years ago? Which is insane. So like in the 80s, she started to to think about what technology was doing to human behavior. Mm. It's scary. It's, it's almost you probably anticipated quite a lot. I mean, I, I don't know if you could have dreamt up, you know, Instagram stories, but she was there. And you know, to, to gender this again, because I think that it was such an interesting perspective you gave earlier. You said that, you know, a lot of men, their partner, for instance, the only person they speak properly too do you think it's the way that male friendships can often work because i know you know the big the big banterous whatsapp group feels like a place where a lot of connection sort of you know, quasi connection takes place yeah so one thing that's interesting is that men have conversations side by side while watching something or doing something or spectating on something that's not a connection in the same way that even via technology, you and I are now looking at each other, right? Whereas men would be side by side doing it. And that immediately takes away some of the perhaps uncomfortability about looking at someone in the face. And it's detrimental. But also, we just, I think, and these are generalities, but anecdotally, they seem to bear out for a lot of men is that we find it very difficult to be a burden on our male friends, to reach out to them, to tell them that we actually need them in our lives, that we miss them. 
I mean, recently a friend of mine went to LA for a month and I told him I missed him. Like I told him I needed to, I needed to speak to him, right? When he gets back. And there's another friend of mine who we always say, I love you when we end our phone calls. Now, sometimes we say, I love you, bruv. So we have the bruv bit to take away anything that makes us slightly feel uncomfortable about it. But other times we just say, I love you. I love you, man. Like, because we do. But then I'm on another WhatsApp group, which I'm increasingly finding quite difficult because there's never anything. I mean, we share music on it. We'll have some kind of post-football banter on it. But I think we're all fooling ourselves that we're in contact with each other because of it. And I've noticed because I left London six years ago and moved to Manchester, and that has really disconnected me from a lot of my male friends who I don't get to see as often. And then when I do go to London, as I, to be fair, often do, it's just trying to fit everybody in that you want to see face to face and actually connect with them. I'm very conscious of my social group shrinking, very conscious of that. But, you know, I did a launch party for my book and it was packed, right? It was packed. And lots of people turned up. David Gandhi turned up. Himesh Patel turned up. Tom Kerridge turned up. There's lots of amazing people that turned up. So I'm blessed to have access to some extraordinary people. And that's fantastic. But, you know, if I'm having an argument with my wife, and she's making me feel really low. There's like less than two or three people that I would call to talk to about that. And then I'd think, well, I'm not going to bother them at a weekend. They're at home now in the evening. So it's their time. It's downtime. They don't want to hear this. And I'm obviously not a woman, so I can't speak for how you would react in those situations. But it seems fairly common that men find it difficult to share those kind of moments of sadness with other men mm. and there's almost a funny reference but I was watching Gavin and Stacey re-watching Gavin and Stacey for the billionth time the other day and there's a scene where I don't know if you're a Gavin and Stacey fan but just yes to, I am everyone is right sure. so so um Gavin and Stacey come back from their honeymoon and there's this like very comic scene where you know Smithy comes in and he's got a deadpan face and he's very angry because Gavin hasn't contacted him for you know a week two weeks I mean and, and it's, yes. it's seen as a comedy thing, right? It's like, oh my God, I can't believe that he cares so much. You know, like he, you know, this guy was on his honeymoon. Obviously that takes precedence. Ha ha, how ridiculous he's being. But actually in a, looked at in another way, like he's, he just loves him. Like, and that, you know, he's knowing him so much longer than, than, than Stacey. And, and there's a real difficult shift of competing societal priorities there and, and and changing relationships and it's hard and I don't know I mean I don't know if anyone really looks at Gavin and Stacey with that amount of poignance but it did sort of it it sort of spoke to me and that you know it, why why aren't men allowed to say I love you to their friends at the end of phone calls I do I think that you know there's still the same sense that partners have to take precedent in some way and it's harder to almost just accept that those connections are you know same but different I don't know. I, I, I like that the narrative is coming out about male friendships. And the other thing I wonder is, do you think it's harder for men to be single sometimes if the only, if the more socially acceptable way to express emotions is within the confines of a relationship for men, whereas women sort of get the best of both worlds sometimes with their friends, they get those emotional relationships either way. Do you think it almost can 
perpetuate relationships for the wrong reasons. Well, I think my son is very much going through this now. You know, he's 15 later on this year and he goes to an all boys school. And there are boys at his school that now have girlfriends. And it's a source of derision, of ridicule from other boys to him that he doesn't have a girlfriend. And I've said to him, listen, it's fine. He's 14, he's five foot 11, he's sporty, he's academic, he's got a square jaw that I would gladly trade my organs in for. I say to him, you'll be fine. Don't let that be some kind of social indicator of societal success that you have a girlfriend at 14. It isn't. No one cares, right? Apart from the group of little boys who feel that they are validated by having a girlfriend right? It doesn't matter. But I went through it. You know, I absolutely went through this feeling that if I didn't have a girlfriend, I was an absolute massive loser. And part of that was to do with just being a kind of Asian kid in a predominantly white area. And it gave me this validation of coolness that I could attract a member of the opposite sex towards me, you know? And I remember that being such a huge source of validation and the just, I mean, it goes back to my life. I have not been single for I don't think almost since I was 15, I don't think there's a stretch of longer than a month where I've been single. So that's like 36 years I have not been single. And part of that, certainly growing up, was the fear of, of almost the, you become a social leper if you don't have a girlfriend. You know, you're not cool. And that fear stuck with me for so many years, so many years. It was always kind of like trying to find it to actually the detriment of relationships because I stayed in relationships much longer than I should have done because I was just scared of being alone. You know, and I don't want my son to inherit that. No way. I want him to be quietly confident that he can go on through life and that there's no source of validation just having a girlfriend so you can tell people you've got a girlfriend. It's fine. It will happen. The only thing you just teach them is to be kind of polite and charming and not disrespectful and understand what consent means and those kinds of important things that he should understand more than just the fact of getting a girlfriend for the sake of it so he can be on Snapchat and Instagram with his boo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not the vibe. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's a really generous perspective. And I think also so great that you're instilling that in your son. I think kids do need to hear it from early on. We're trying. It's very hard as well, Francesca, when your son goes to an all boys school where there's a lot of testosterone around and they're watching Andrew Tate videos, right? And you're trying to make sure, and pornography is, you know, he and I had a conversation about that the other day, you know, and pornography is everywhere, right? So it's hard. I won't know how well we've done for a few more years yet because he's not in a relationship with a girl yet. But he also has a sister and they fight and, you know, they're very rude to each other as teenagers can be siblings. So that's a problem, right? Because you're thinking, right, that can't translate over into a relationship. The way you talk to your sister, the way she talks to you, that can't be how you frame what girls are like. So it's, you know, it's constant, you know, it's, it's a constant kind of trying to work it out. 
Mm. And there's, I think it's the difficult thing with single sex schooling of almost giving enough examples of the opposite sex, enough sort of, you know, intersex like friendships, whatever, just to almost yeah. <laughs> socialise that way. But. He's got a great platonic relationship, actually, with, with a friend that he's known since, a female friend he's known since he was very young. He's a very cool kid. I mean, they're both very, very cool kids. I'm so beyond proud of, of who they are. And I look forward to seeing who they'll become. I look forward to seeing who they'll become. I also wanted to ask just on the subject of those friendships and then the subject of, you know, where you do, where you are able to have those emotional connections. Do you think there's also a sense that if you're not in a relationship and then I'm talking as you get older, I'm talking sort of in, you know, in, I don't know, at any stage, I suppose you need to have emotional conversations with people, but you know, later on, there is this feeling that people cloister up. I don't know. I, I think that particularly as people get married or in long-term relationships, they don't feel able to express everything to each other. But do you think it's important that, I don't know, to almost maintain those friendships as a means to, if you do end up, you know, worst case scenario, having to end a relationship, having to be single, social validation aside, that's the extra problem that, okay, if I end this relationship, I have no one to talk to. I have no, I don't have almost an equivalent in my life. Like I'm alone emotionally. I mean, that's more of a relevant question to you than it is to me at this stage, because it's been so long since I've been single. I don't know. <laughs> but I know that you cannot put all your eggs into one basket, right? That you have to maintain friendships that will last beyond what may not last. But also, of course, you can't go into a relationship thinking that, right? You can't go into a relationship saying, right, I'm going to carry on hanging out with my mates just in case this doesn't work. You should carve out time. You shouldn't just think that your entire world revolves around this one person. And I have to say, to a certain extent, it's difficult. My, my entire world does revolve a lot around my wife. But I think as I've got older, I've definitely needed to spend much more time with my pals, you know, to carve out that time. And, and I'm lucky that I can do it while I'm in London on business ostensibly. So I'll come to London. If I'm staying over a hotel at night and then getting a train back the following morning, I'll make sure I have dinner with some friends. The one thing that I'm super conscious of as I get older and it's hard work getting other guys involved, I think, is to make new memories rather than trading on the old ones. You know, and as you get older, you should certainly say to your friends, right, let's do stuff together. Let's not just meet up, have a drink and talk about the old times. That seems so depressing to me, you know, and we lost a friend during COVID, a very close friend, and we managed to get a weekend away in the Cotswolds to kind of celebrate his life. And that was last year. And we still haven't managed to get one done for this year. And I'm kind of pushing towards that i've got some time off in november that i have to take away from the bbc so we're going to try and get some people together for a weekend then to kind of celebrate mm. that first off i'm really sorry that that happens to you and, and to your friendship group it's you know it's, it's hard to be dealing with together um and i totally i read something there was, i think there was a study that said that nostalgia uh, you know like nostalgia based memories when you have connections and you only bring up like old times, that's not as much connecting as also being able to create rituals. So, you, you know, rituals that take you forward 
as well. So I guess you're doing, you know, you're doing the right thing by like coming together around things. I think that. Well, we're trying to. I mean, it's it's quite difficult. I mean, the interesting thing about the launch party was that was a new memory. But sadly, to none of my closest circle really attended that launch party. I mean, the launch party was sponsored by Mont Blanc. It was a, you know, it, it, it is what it is. It was fantastic. And it was amazing that Mont Blanc were brilliant. And obviously, we got a lot of people that I've known through my industry, people I've helped over the years. And that was great. But that's not the same as going to the Cotswolds with a load of us, having dinner at some farmhouse, coming away from that. We went wild swimming. You know what I mean? Like, you know, three or four men in our trucks in this lake, freezing, swimming around, having fun. It was utterly blissful, right? It's just joyous. But now with that house in Sri Lanka, I'm hoping that that will become, as we get older, a place where we can all go. We're thinking about, I think... um, January 2024 for potentially going to the house because the England cricket team are playing in Sri Lanka and we can use the house as a base and then go and watch cricket, right? So we're just thinking, I'm thinking about stuff like that really now. It's gorgeous. I think more male friendship groups need to take uh, take take that initiative, you know, getting out of the WhatsApp group, creating yes. those sort of forward, that forward planning, I think almost sort of, again, coming back to, you know, like alone time, friendship as well can really benefit from from scheduling it can it can make or break sometimes for sure and so we're coming to the end of the episode but my final question to every guest is what is your alonement when time alone is objectively sort of restorative joyful fulfilling for you i'll tell you when i find it and in some ways i don't want to find it i want to constantly be searching for it because when i find it i'll rest in it I don't want to rest in it because I think there are a thousand alonements that I can find in this big wide world. And I found the one in my car and I found the one in in an armchair in David Lloyd, right? (laughs) And that's just two of them. And I think I found the one at the house in Sri Lanka. So that's three of them. I'm going to keep searching for that moment of alonement. I don't want to think of one place and be constantly drawn back to it. It's the same argument that I always give about music. And as you know, Francesco, I've been involved in the music industry and been a DJ, is that I'm yet to hear the best song. Even though I've been listening to music for decades now and heard amazing music, similarly with Alonement, I'll tell you when I found the next one. Speaks to me. Something to look forward to. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you, Francesca. It's been a really, really lovely conversation, which is perfect because my book is all about amazing conversations and this has definitely been one. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Alonement. If you loved this episode, then you know what I would really like you to do is to share it with someone that you think would benefit. That's all from me. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.